You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome to episode 184 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for this week. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Rejoining us this week after his vacation is Nathan Gilmore, who is an associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Where'd you go on your vacation, Nathan? Uh, Decula Elementary School. Weird. <laughs> well... <laughs> I hope the authorities at the school knew that. Uh, although it, it was a it was a highly unsettling meeting because my my fifth grade son, his uh, math teacher, basically pitched you know these paths that he could go on at this point. One of which culminates in you know taking dual enrollment math classes as a high school senior. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, my kid's ten. Why are we already talking about dual enrollment credits? It's very European, though. You got to get them on that path to determine what his future is going to be now. Man, oh man! But uh, or Japan, uh, and we know that works out well. <laughs> uh, the uh, the the person skeptical of Japanese educational systems is David Grubbs, who's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. I always want to call it Houston Baptist College. Yeah, well, not anymore. University, we totally have graduate degrees. H. Boo, Boo. I, Do they call it I, that? I, no, just just HBU. You should make that happen. Boo. <laughs> I, I, uh, I I don't think that's going to happen. Well, let's uh, let's dive right in. We spent 20 minutes talking before the show today, so we uh, we have less time to record. Our episode today is about Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, not New Testament Joseph. Um, he is one of two or three characters in the Hebrew Bible who appeal to children. So I want to begin by talking about our Sunday school experiences with him. What were you guys told about Joseph in your various children's Sunday school classes? Right, we'll start with Hugh Groves. Oh, gosh. Um, all, all the way back to flannel graph days. Right? <laughs> um, Joseph was a favorite um, because... The Joseph story, especially the especially the beginning of it, is anchored in a lot of uh, a lot of family dynamics that are still translatable, are still kind of relationally connectable to what children know, um, namely relationships to parents and relationships to siblings. All right, so I mean, it ma- it makes sense that the Joseph story, especially the early bits. Um, would would be interesting to kids. Um, also, they look pretty on a flannel graph, and Joseph gets lost of lots of interesting costume changes, which I think is probably <laughs> well. And the Dolly Parton <laughs> song is so connected to it. I guess um, I don't know the Dolly Parton song. Coat of many colors. Don't know it. Well, Sorry, it's not really I, I about Joseph. Yeah, yeah, I'm 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 not really up on the whole Dolly Parton 
body of work there. Oh, that's our next episode, though. Uh, I guess I'm gonna <laughs> <laughs> going to have to break out the Dolly Parton and listen. Um, later on, I remember th- more things. Um, Joseph has a cautionary tale for being kind of a a cocky little, you know, annoying person. Um, the dangers of favoritism. Uh, Joseph as a role model of chastity, but we'll we'll get around to that, I believe. Yeah, that's that's how he shows up in youth groups yeah. uh, a lot of the time, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, my daughter uh, is obsessed with Joseph. Arden loves. She has a little, a tiny little board book that's the story of Joseph. And interestingly enough, it's Joseph. It's it's only the Joseph and his brothers trajectory. And it basically consists of there's Joseph. He has a beautiful coat and lots of brothers, and they throw him in a hole. That's her favorite <laughs> part, right? She's like, she's like, they throw him in a hole. <laughs> I was like, yes, Arden. They they threw him in a hole. <laughs> Grubs, take this in the spirit it's intended. But I think our listeners would be very interested in a book written by you and Katie about how to make your children grow up weird. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe we'll get around. Maybe we'll get around to that. But anyway, Arden Arden loves the whole. Loves loves the Joseph's brothers throw him in a whole part. Um, what's really interesting about this little board book? I mean, just kind of side note, it doesn't moralize. It doesn't draw any kind of conclusions about how this is supposed to work for your life. It's just Joseph had brothers. They throw him in a hole. He ended up in Egypt, <laughs> and you know, was able to give them food and he forgave his brothers. The end. And that's, that's like it. You know, it's, it's the most beautifully undigested little Joseph story I've ever seen. Nathan. (laughs) I'll admit, I don't have any real clear memories of the Joseph story uh, as a child, but I do know that when I, actually sat down to read the narrative uh you know much later on late teenage years i read it as a story that i recognized i felt like i was picking up on things that i had missed when i'd heard it before uh so i mean it was definitely somewhere back there in my childhood uh but honestly it is uh not distinct enough that i can remember how it was taught to me uh i know i've seen joseph on flannel graph but i'm pretty sure that comes from working with kids in church rather than being a kid in church. Uh, So, uh, unfortunately, uh, Joseph is, for me, shrouded in uh, the uh, dark, forgotten past. How about you, Michael? I want to add another reason he's appealing to children, which is the dream stuff. I think think kids like that stuff, or I did when I was a kid. I remember being very disturbed by the seven years of famine. In, in the story. Like, like, I think that was the first time it occurred to me that, like, food could disappear. That, that it wasn't, it wasn't magical. It didn't just, it, it wasn't manna from heaven. It, it, that it was reliant on natural processes, which could go bad. Mm. So I, I remember being very disturbed by the, the seven years of famine and, and picturing, like, this giant warehouse full of flour, just uncollected flour that people would come and get from Joseph. Which I don't know. I don't know how it worked. <laughs> Pyramids. That's that's what I heard. 
Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> <no>, good lord. <laughs> Un- unfortunately, I don't have uh, I don't have any stories as horrifying as my Daniel story, which I think I've talked about in enough detail in previous episodes. Eat your, eat your veggies. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joseph is part of the covenant history that begins with Abraham and moves all the way through to Christ. He's the last patriarch of the Book of Genesis, and in particular, I think it's hard to understand him without understanding his father Jacob, my personal favorite character from Genesis. Um, Nathan, what necessary background material does the story of Jacob give us for interpreting the stories about Joseph? The prime datum that we should focus on when we think about Jacob relative to Joseph is that Jacob is someone who is born late, uh, but who, even in the process of being born, is grabbing at the heel, uh, which if if you've taken your intro to Old Testament, you know, that's a euphemism, uh, and as they are born, even though he is the second born, he is already scheming to get ahead. Jacob is the trickster figure of the book of Genesis. Uh, Abraham sort of sets the stage with his attempted deception of Pharaoh and other kings, but almost all of those are related to, you know, pimping his wife to various monarchs. Uh, Jacob is far more flexible in that respect. Uh, at one point, he, by means of some very strange uh genetics uh gets a whole flock of sheep to himself that should belong to his father-in-law uh when he does this uh you know he takes his two wives by that point he has a pair of them and in the process of escaping from his father-in-law uh you discover that you know his wives as well are sort of trickster figures oh yes Uh, so you know the the fun about Jacob uh, is that he is certainly in that patriarchal line, uh, but as far as a moral exemplar, just don't look at him uh, because he lies, he cheats, he steals, uh, he does all these sorts of things. I actually uh, did a uh, paper in grad school on uh, Marlowe's Jew of Malta uh, and kind of looked at the way that uh, Barabbas in that story gets treated compared to the way that Jacob gets treated in Calvin's commentary on Genesis. And it was just some very, very fascinating stuff because uh, Marlowe, who of course has a theological education, definitely borrows some of that uh, justification of Jacob from Calvin when he has Barabbas talk about himself. So fascinating stuff in that respect. I know that's not the question, Michael, but I just had to do that little sidetrack. The other thing that I would want to emphasize about the Jacob story is that, by contrast to Joseph, it is a very episodic story. You can pretty much pull any instance from the life of Jacob, or for that matter, from the life of Abraham, out of the story, narrated as a self-contained unit, uh, and not lose a whole lot. Whereas with Joseph, you're really dealing with the longest continuous narrative that you're really going to find in the Old Testament. I mean, even David's story is episodic by comparison. Uh, Robert Alter, the the biblical scholar, uh, author of The Art of Biblical Narrative, really puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that if you track Joseph from Genesis 36 all the way to Joseph, all the way to Joseph, wow, all the way to Genesis 50, uh, you see continuing motifs, you see scenes that rely on previous scenes, you really see a lot of literary connection there that you don't see in other places. That said, at the end of the Joseph story, you get one last appearance of Jacob 
And it's very interesting because Jacob seems to have a sense when he comes into the presence of Pharaoh, and we might talk about that episode at more length later, uh, that he is not a holy man, first and foremost, but he is one who has received divine favor for reasons that even he can't fathom. And, you know, that's, that's something that really runs from end to end with the Jacob story. Uh, David, I'm, I, what else about Jacob should we think about when we start to get into the Joseph narrative? Well, in practical terms, the Joseph story, as we get it, doesn't happen without the incredibly complicated things con, uh, connected to Jacob and his wives. Right. Um, were it not for the fact that he labored seven years for a wife he didn't get, um, and as a result didn't end up with the one wife that he wanted, but the four wives, essentially, <laughs> because of the the sisterly rivalry between Rachel and Leah, and then the, you know, bringing in their handmaidens to, you know, kind of, I, I, I guess, serve as, as switch hitters or something. Um, not, couldn't have not, happened not, to a more deserving guy, by the way. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, if 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 anybody deserved to be bed tricked, um, it's it's probably it's probably Jacob. Behold, but, there was Leah. <laughs> <laughs> bum bum bum. Hey, uh, you, hey, I hear you. I hear you like switcheroos. I hear you like that, Jacob. Mm-hmm. Here, that's, here, that's your thing. Anyway. I, I actually hear that uh, Salon dot com is doing an expose on uh, Jacob. <laughs> Not. <laughs> Not. Wow. <laughs> I was waiting for the headline punchline, Nathan. <laughs> Cutting no, edge. No, no. So, anyhow, um, yeah. Without without that story, we don't get the Joseph story, and makes it makes a lot of these elements um, explicable. Um, it it. It's the it's the rivalries and the complications in the gener- in the generation before that are serving as the the impetus to you know conflict in this one right and it it serves as a kind of historical foil as well mm-hmm. for a lot of what goes on. Important to note, right that that of the four women, the one Jacob really loves is is Rachel. Right. Joseph is Rachel's only son at the time of the st- that his story begins, and this is why he is Jacob's favorite. That, mm-hmm. that in a real sense, that that relationship is the one that Jacob labored for for fourteen years. Yeah. Um, Benjamin, of course, also Rachel's son, but Benjamin's not born until after after Joseph is thrown down the hole. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he he. Uh, Benjamin is essentially the backup Joseph. I've always thought of him that way. <laughs> How sad. Yeah. The, the Bible's Atticid. <laughs> At least they didn't also name him Joseph. You know? Yeah, that would have been awkward. Well, Joseph's what? story is kickstarted by a series of dreams he has about himself. Mm. Dreams that later, they're, they're really kind of a Chekhov's gun um, for a later incident when he's in prison. What do these stories, the the initial dreams, tell us about the way ancient Hebrews viewed dreams, and and how might Joseph's dreams be different from others in the Bible or elsewhere? David, hmm. well, this is not the first um, this is not the first prophetic or revelatory dream in in Genesis. I mean, even before that, Jacob 
Jacob has his his dream of of a ladder or a stairway to heaven. Um, so the, there's there's kind of a family history of dreaming significant dreams. One of the interesting things about Joseph's own dreams, though, is first. Well, first, I should probably recount the dreams. Uh, first, he has a dream in which sheaves of grain. Uh, there are 12 sheaves of grain, and each of them corresponds to Joseph and, and one of his brothers. And Joseph observes that the sheaves that correspond, the, his brother's sheaves all bow down to his sheaf. Does it have mm. his face? Like, how um, does he know? <laughs> Well, it's a the the dream begins. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, oh, yeah. and behold, my sheaf arose. So, so in the dream, they're all harvesting wheat, and so he knows which one is his. Um, he knows which ones are his brothers. So it it you know, um, and then in the 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 next dream that he has, uh, he is. He is be he is he is being bowed to not a surrogate but he is being bowed to by eleven stars the sun and the moon. All right. So a couple of observations about these dreams. First, Joseph doesn't interpret them. He just tells them the first dream to his brothers, and then the second dream he tells to his brothers and uh, his father. All right. So Joseph doesn't actually offer an interpretation of either of these dreams. Uh, the interpretation is implicit, and it's actually one that's made by the brothers and in the first place and his brothers and the father in the second place. And in both cases, they're outraged. Now, I think it's unclear at this point whether this dream is seen as prophetic or revelatory or whether this dream is seen often as dreams are seen these days as reflections of our unexpressed desires. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I think the, the reaction of the brothers and of Jacob in the second to the second dream makes better sense. If you read it, not as them responding to a prophecy, but as responding to the dream as, as Joseph's Joseph's wish to dominate coming out in his coming out in his dreams. Right. Um, uh, the, their reaction makes, I think, better sense in, 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 that, in that particular sense. Now, later on, he does, he does interpret other dreams. Um, he interprets dreams in the jail in Egypt, and ultimately he interprets Pharaoh's dream. But all of the, that whole theme of dreams being important um, to this story is, is set up at the beginning and it's only it's the dreams in the middle which are interpreted and then come true it's the dreams in the middle that allow us to go to look back at the dream at the beginning and see it as prophetic and not just as um an ugly unspoken wish from Joseph because at the by the end of the story that dream in fact does come true uh it wasn't just an unconscious wish it wasn't just Joseph having dreams of power. Um, it was, it was a revelation mm-hmm. in terms of how he ancient Hebrews viewed dreams. Well, it's not just the ancient Hebrews who were viewing dreams this way. Uh, it, clearly the Egyptians are thinking of it this way too. Dreams 
are important later on uh, in Scripture too. The book of Daniel, uh, Daniel's ability to interpret the dreams of monarchs in Babylon is hugely important. And even in the New Testament, uh, the, the, the first gospel of the New Testament, Matthew, begins with another Joseph having another dream. Uh, it's an angel who comes to him, but it's specifically said an angel comes to him in a dream. The dream is still the medium for for that uh, for that moment. So it, it seems like a, a a fairly common ancient Near Eastern thing to to wonder about. You know, is this dream just coming out of me, or is this dream a messenger? Um, in the Aeneid, uh, there's the description of the gate of horn and the gate of ivory in the underworld, and through the gate of horn come true dreams, and through the gate of ivory come lying dreams. So this this is a, a fairly common idea that possibly dreams mean things, but possibly they don't. And how and who's to tell which is which. It's interesting how how that power to interpret dreams seems to be popular among Hebrew exiles in other lands. Mm-hmm. At least, mm-hmm. I mean, we don't have enough data, I guess, to to really make that statement. But both jo- both Joseph and Daniel are exiles, and mm-hmm. and both of them have this power that gives them social capital. Right, right, right. Both though, um, both though, attributed their attribute their ability to do it to God, sure. not to their own, not to their own skill. Um, and in both cases, it's it's stated that there's already a class of people who are in the employ of the ruler, the Pharaoh in one case, and the king of Babylon in the other, um, who that's their job. <laughs> I would say it doesn't really take divine power to interpret those first two dreams Joseph has. <laughs> they, seem, they seem pretty obvious. I don't, mm. think you need, I don't think you need Sigmund Freud's interpretation of dreams to get that one. Well, which is why his brothers and his dad immediately get grumpy at him. Mm. You, but I've always felt like he was playing coy. Like, he tells them that dream knowing exactly what the dream says. But, oh, he doesn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, 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 that can make sense, and in, in, in which case it serves as characterization, right, um, for, for Joseph. But still, you've got to, I mean, the text never actually says that. So is that the author being coy and leaving you to fill in the blanks the way often happens actually in these narratives you know hmm about the only thing i'd add to that is that joseph's second dream in particular uh contains some of the the well i i honestly don't know what to do with it because often in ancient near eastern writings more broadly and in biblical writings in particular uh, the sun and the moon and the stars are stand-ins for superhuman beings of some sort, right? I mean, they're certainly mm-hmm. not the modern imagination that they are inert uh, hunks of rock or balls of gas. I mean, these are superhuman, sometimes angelic and intelligences. Uh, and, you know, in the dream, I mean, these higher-than-human powers are bowing down to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you... Reading it from you know not from the perspective of you know what's going on in Joseph's mind, but in the perspective of what kind of stories does Israel tell to explain its own roots? 
uh, you can see this as, you know, this is not just, you know, any old ten brothers, uh, but these are the ten tribes of Israel bowing down to him. You know, this is uh, the root of the divine promise to the people. Uh, and in this dream, you know, Joseph sees himself as supreme over them, and not only supreme over them, but also supreme over the sun itself, which is to say Israel. And I don't think that conflation of names is accidental by any means. Mm-hmm. Interesting, though, that there's only one moon. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and for that matter, that there's 11 stars, right? Right. The rest of them are yeah. not impressed with Joseph. Well, yeah, because Benjamin isn't born yet. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. I mean, it, well, it's kind of funny. Like, it, you know, Michael's point earlier about Chekhov's gun, it's like, well, there were 11 stars, but only 10 of them threw me in a hole. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, Joseph's brothers are so infuriated by those self-aggrandizing dreams that they sell him into slavery in Egypt. He works for a guy named Potiphar. Some unpleasantness, shall we say, happens. <laughs> Nathan, can you unpack some of the racial, gender, and class implications of those scenes in Potiphar's house? Certainly. To back up a bit to the selling into slavery, one thing we should note is that the dreams are not the only incidents that get narrated. Uh, you know, the brother's vengeance against Joseph is sort of overdetermined in a literary sense. You've certainly got the dreams. You've certainly got the favoritism of the parents. You've also got a very early uh, incident, which really only gets one sentence in the narrative, where mm. Joseph's brothers are working, and Joseph brings back a bad report of them to the father. Uh, so not only uh, is he an egomaniac, he's also a snitch. Did you know? When, I, I had never noted this before. Did you know which brothers he rats out? No, I didn't pay attention to that. The the brothers that he rats out are the sons of the handmaids. Oh, fascinating. Oh, interesting. No. So yeah, I never made that connection. That's good. So there's even potentially a a rank pulling kind of thing there. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Sorry. So when Joseph does make it to Egypt, uh he is sold into the household of a wealthy man, one Potiphar. Uh and he is so talented, uh, and you know, of course, the the narrative attributes those gifts to God, as a good biblical narrative should. Um, and he is basically put in charge of this very wealthy household, uh, so much so that he enters into a scenario where there's a chance for him to be in the same place alone with the wife of Potiphar. Uh, the wife of Potiphar, you know, longs for him, desires him. Uh, and attempts to seduce him. And Joseph, uh, after resisting verbally, eventually attempts to flee. Uh, Potiphar's wife basically acquires his garment in that act of fleeing uh, and, you know, takes that as evidence to Potiphar that, you know, Joseph had stripped off and attempted to assault her. Uh, Now, what's interesting about this is that the Genesis narrative is so spare that at this point, Uh, Potiphar simply has him thrown in prison and we move on to the next set of episodes. Uh, In the Quranic version of the Joseph story, uh, they actually have a trial for Joseph. (laughs) The wise men say that, you know, uh, you should see, uh, you know, presumably there was some sort of struggle whether, whether Joseph's story is right or whether 
Potiphar's wife's story is right. Uh, if he has been attacked from the front, that means she was putting up a fight while he was assaulting her. If there are claw marks on the back, that means she assaulted him while he was trying to get away. And they discover that he's got fingernail marks on his back. So they say, well, you know, obviously he didn't try to to assault her, but we should throw him in prison anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Also, also, and not to get too graphic, although that one, uh, that one listener does want us to talk about sex. Uh, I'm not sure that's what I would immediately assume with claw marks on his back. <laughs> I, I'm just I, I'm just relating the Quranic version, Michael. I <laughs> I'm just the reporter here, but you know you posed the question about you know uh, gender assumptions. This is a a big difference from the sort of 19th century Victorian notion that men are active and aggressive. And, you know, full of sexual desire and women are passive and, you know, really just want the affection of men and not to have sex. Uh, this is a woman who, you know, seeks out a an adulterous relationship with a slave boy. Uh, and, you know, when she faces rejection on account of it, uh, she does pull rank on him. She uses her position as the wife of a wealthy subject, I guess, of Pharaoh, although it's not clear. I will talk about this later, but the later narrative almost treats Joseph as an ideological reason why Egypt became the great power, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, But at any rate, uh, you know, this is very, very different from, like I said, the, the Victorian, you know, sort of early biological notions of masculinity and femininity that so much of 20th century, you know, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking Freud, I'm thinking Jim Dobson, I'm thinking so many figures in the 20th century just kind of proceeded under the assumption that men want sex and women tolerate it. Uh, that's not what's happening in Genesis. Uh, so as far as race goes, I'm, I'm not as sure on that one simply because, uh, you know, the, Egyptians and the Hebrews seem to be interchangeable enough that a few chapters up the line, Moses can be adopted by the royal family of the Pharaoh. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's no real talk about that. Moses can later on marry a Cushite woman who has dark skin. And there is some talk about that, but not because she's Egyptian. It's because she's Cushite. Um, So I'm not as sure on, on, on that one. Uh, as far as class implications, that's really the big one here, because within the story of Israel, Joseph is, as we talked about earlier, the chief of that generation of the patriarchs. But when he's in Egypt, he's a slave. Mm-hmm. He is in the house of a wealthy Egyptian man. Uh, but in the context here, he is a commoner. He is without status. Unlike the Quranic narrative, he, he gets no trial. He simply gets thrown into prison. Uh, so it's definitely a story of a character who undergoes, I mean, a, a whole spectrum of class statuses in a relatively few chapters. And of course, you know, uh, I don't think we can do spoiler alerts with Bible stories. They've been around a while. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, his class status undergoes some more of those roller coaster ups and downs in the chapters following the Potiphar's wife incident. Um David, beyond that stuff, I mean, what what other uh, social divides am I perhaps underplaying here? Well, one particular 
divide that's that's happening more literarily is a is the is the the contrast between this event in Joseph's life and the sort of meanwhile back at the ranch narrative that happens in the chapter before oh yeah yeah um joseph's the 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 narrative of joseph is not completely continuous with genesis i mean most of the back end of genesis is focused on is focused on joseph but there's this one chapter uh 38 which is focused on his brother judah uh one of uh one of leah's sons who is and and the scenario of him you know him taking a wife um uh his sons successively well his his first son taking a wife uh Tamar uh hit that son dies and in this this attempt to raise up a next generation that that keeps failing as jo- as Judah's sons just keep getting struck dead and eventually Tamar the daughter-in-law uh has to trick uh seduce uh through a trick her her father-in-law into sleeping with her in order to raise up um future generations of <laughs> of Judeans <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um now this is this is the chapter that comes immediately before chapter 39 with the story of of Joseph resisting uh the seduction of uh of Potiphar's wife and literally he's you know Judah is Judah is functioning as a kind of foil mm-hmm. uh, Judah is uh in some in some senses casually predatory um you know open to the blandishments of people he doesn't even know uh the reason why the 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 success the 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 trick is successful is because his daughter-in-law is veiled you know he has no idea who he's sleeping with um you know so when you go to the when you get to the Joseph story Joseph Joseph's sexual ethics stands out more starkly in terms of in terms of literature and you know just kind of harking back to Joseph being popular in youth group um well of course Joseph is popular in youth group this is pretty much the only story like this that I can think of in the bible pretty much mm-hmm. every other biblical dude in this situation caves like a wet paper sack the, the sexual <laughs> ethics of the Hebrew Bible are inchoate, we might say. They're, they're not well-developed. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say that the, it's not so much that they're well-developed as it is that they're just honest about the fact that most folks don't actually live by the sexual ethic that um, the Pentateuch and, and the rest thereafter kind of lays out, if that makes sense. Um. I don't know that they're necessarily set up as good example as, as I, I, I don't think the I don't think the Genesis in particular feels like it has to only tell you the stories in which these guys are being good examples. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Well, and that's what's <laughs> interesting about it. You know, I mean, that's why it's somewhat dishonest for people to say, "Well, the Old Testament was all right with polygamy." It's like, well, the Old Testament narrates polygamy. Yeah. If you take a close look, it doesn't make a moral judgment one way or the other. It's almost as if that moral judgment is up to the community to be responsible for. It certainly mm. makes a practical judgment. the the first The yeah. first act of polygamy, as I recall, is is Abraham with his with with Sarah's uh, 
Sarah's servant, more of a concubine mm-hmm. relationship, and that certainly mm-hmm. does not turn out well. Meanwhile, yeah. Jacob is only married to more than one woman because he's tricked, and it comes to all sorts of wickedness, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's true that by the time you get to David and Solomon, you don't see as many practical consequences. But I, I think it's hard to read the book of Genesis. Well, Solomon, out, yeah. <laughs> but it's hard to read the book of Genesis and come out thinking, yeah, polygamy. Right. My, my favorite yeah. section in all of Genesis is when uh, Jacob is in the fields and mm-hmm. uh, and Leah and, and Rachel have made a made an agreement about who's going to sleep with them that night based on some mandrakes. Like they, one of them, I think Rachel trades uh, trades Joseph for the evening or Jacob, excuse me, for the evening for some uh, for some mandrakes. And uh, I mm-hmm. always just imagine Jacob coming home and being informed of this, and him being very tired from a day in the fields and saying, "Yeah, all right." <laughs> <laughs> Right. But to go back to what you just said, Michael, I mean, what you just did was a midrashic interpretation of what goes on there, right? There is no subject verb sentence in Genesis that says, don't do this. Right. Well, uh, um, there, there is one little allusion to uh, polygamy that comes before, and it's actually one of the descendants of Cain. Um, it's it's uh, Lamech, one of the descendants of Cain, who it, mm-hmm. it notes – um, takes two wives, um, which, you know, that's not really a great recommendation. Right, right. But, I mean, you know, <laughs> David takes seven wives and his son tries to murder him. Yeah. Solomon takes 700 wives and a few generations later the kingdom is not only split but also in exile. So, yeah, I'm, yeah, I mean, you have to do the interpretive work as the reader to get there. Right. Two more things about Mrs. Potiphar. Mm-hmm. First, there is a terrible Christian pop-punk song from the late 90s called Run, Joseph, Run by the band T- <laughs> Tasty Snacks with an X, uh, which is worth listening to if you want to hear the very worst Christian music has to offer. <laughs> I'm sure it's on YouTube. Run, Joseph, Run. Oh, it's terrible. Um, also, that scene is comic. I mean, it's not comic because the consequences are so so intense, but, you, uh, I mean... It's a it's a comic staple back to the earliest days of comedy. The Randy, middle aged woman going after the uninterested pool boy, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 I, I don't know how much this story fits into that tradition, but living post that tradition, it's very difficult to read it without seeing a little bit of that comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's Venus and Adonis, right? Yeah, right. Mrs. Potiphar, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> yeah. well, moving on. <laughs> While he's in prison, Joseph meets a pair of imprisoned servants uh, in Pharaoh's court. I don't want to have an argument about the historicity of the narrative, but to me, there's something very fairy taleish, something very allegorical about the baker and the cupbearer in the story. It's it's very neatly arranged. What purpose mm-hmm. do they serve, uh, David, in the narrative or in Joseph's life? Hmm. There definitely is some artful composition going on here in in the construction and selection of of, of incidents. Um, among other things, what for the first time in the story, we've already had dreams. Dreams are introduced at the very beginning; they're the opening move. But they aren't. Um, but those dreams are not overtly interpreted, and it's never 
it's it's never stated whether or not those dreams are prophecies or just Joseph's wishful thinking. In this particular case, we now have dreams upgraded to a prophetic revelatory function, uh, overtly, right? There might have been suggestions before, but now it's overt. We also get to see the tropes of what dream interpretation looks like. Well, and just, you know, just to read that, they have the, the, both the butler or the cupbearer and the baker are thrown into, are thrown into prison for some unspecified, uh, sin. Uh, Pharaoh is angry at them and they are in prison. And the cupbearer has a dream in which uh, he sees a vine with three clusters of grapes and he takes those grapes and presses them into Pharaoh's cup and gives it into Pharaoh's hand. And then the baker has a dream in which he has three bread baskets on his head and the top basket, the birds are eating out of it. Right? So you've got th- three items for Pharaoh they're connected with their jobs all right this is very um very closely mapped onto uh their 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 vocations and their relationship to Pharaoh right it's it's not like my dreams where you know if i was in joseph's prison i would be like yeah i had this dream in which i kept trying to run but i moved really really slow and I knew, I knew that something was behind me. What does that mean? <laughs> anyway, th- these dreams were a little more on the nose. Um, so in both cases, the three items mean three days. Um, and in both cases, they mean that Pharaoh will lift up your head. Um, the idea that the person in prison is bowed down in, in shame or in contrition or in suffering. And to lift up someone's head is to... Um, in one sense, is to raise their status, to raise them up again out of being, you know, sunk in, sunk in sadness. Well, the butler is going, or the cupbearer is going to be, uh, his head is going to be raised and he's going to be restored. The baker, his head is going to be raised in the noose. Um, he's going to be hung from a tree and the birds are going to eat him. So, you know, these are these are the tropes of of dream interpretation as they are in the in the story of Joseph. Uh this story sets those up. It also sets up the relationship that makes the the future Pharaoh's dream possible. Uh it's the it's the cupbearer who is supposed to tell Pharaoh, who is supposed to put in a good word about Joseph except he forgets <laughs> for two, for 2 years. Until Pharaoh has a dream and he's like, oh, yeah, I remember this guy. Um, another thing that's that's happening in this story outside of the dreams is that while Joseph is in jail, he's put in charge of jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, wherever Joseph is, he ends up getting mated like a supervisor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Apparently, Joseph is management material. <laughs> and his interpretation of dreams goes hand in hand with his ability to manage things wisely. He is foresighted in the, the, the narrative cons- is, is, is portraying him as foresighted in a couple of different ways. He's the one through whom these visions of the future happen, but he's also the one who has the prudence to act in the present 
for for the sake of future prosperity. Um, everything that he does, um, the Lord makes to succeed, says the last verse of chapter 39. So there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of different things that are being set up in this story that uh, hark to what came before and hark to what came after. It's a bridge. Mm-hmm. He uh, he is apparently imminently forgettable, though, because the cupbearer forgets him, and then we learn at the beginning of Exodus that the new Pharaoh does not remember Joseph. <laughs> I think that the the beginning of Exodus is probably telling us about uh, about a dynastic shift. Mm-hmm. So you know, maybe not exactly the same kind of forgettable. <laughs> Anything to add there, Nathan? Uh, just to piggyback on something David said, you know, this is a common exile story from the Old Testament. Uh, when Israel goes into foreign lands, the captor people, the imperial ethnicity, if you will, uh, tends to find the people of Israel really quite helpful for administering their business. Um, and, you know, uh, I guess now I can go ahead and, you know, tell this little story because we're going to kind of jump over it to the next little bit, but uh, the cupbearer and the the baker story reveal that Joseph uh, has abilities that Egypt itself cannot generate, uh, that it's only the introduction of the people, uh, you know, the the house of Israel into Egypt that allows the cupbearer to find out his fate, and then later on for the pharaoh to find about the impending famine, and later on for all of the people of all the surrounding nations basically to sell themselves into slavery to the Pharaoh, thereby making Pharaoh the sort of overlord of the region uh, that we recognize from the beginning of Exodus. So it's, it's one of those uh, sort of backhanded uh, boasts of the old Testament that yes, Pharaoh is the, you know, the superpower. He's the nastiest being in the universe at the beginning of Exodus and he never would have gotten there except for the Jews. Mm. He's yeah. making Egypt great again? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to walk right past that one, Grubs. Uh, well, Hi. moving on. I decided I wanted to do this episode because I recently reread the reunion between Joseph and his brothers. Mm. I had always thought of Joseph, probably because I learned about him in Sunday school, as this almost supernaturally pure and patient and kind man. He's kind of a jerk here. Uh, He Mm -hmm. pretends he doesn't recognize them, although he immediately recognizes them. And then he pretends to believe they're spies. He puts one of them in prison. He plants a silver cup on Benjamin. Mm -hmm. This is the spot where he sounds most like his no-count father uh, to to me. (laughs) Nathan, am I misreading this text? Is there some sort of divine motivation for him acting like this, or is he just bitter? It's interesting. I mean, and again, this points to the reality that Hebrew narrative, literally speaking, is so spare that it invites and it commands interpretation from the readers. Uh, Michael just said that he sees Joseph as acting more like Jacob here than anywhere else in the story. I see Joseph here as acting more like Pharaoh here than anywhere else in the story. Uh, You know, he is among people who he, by all rights, should regard as his equals uh, and yet, as Michael said, he plants evidence on them to throw them into jail unjustly. Who does that sound like in our narrative? Potiphar's wife, maybe. Also, Mark uh, Harmon. <laughs> yes, that too. It's a timely <laughs> cultural reference. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, what, what was that, 94? Uh, but, <laughs> um, you know, Joseph here 
uh, hides his own identity, like Michael said, so that they will continue for a while to bow down to him. Uh, again, you know, putting himself in a very Pharaoh-like place. Um, you know, th- this is an incident where most of us can agree that he is at the very least questionable ethically. Uh, but it's interesting that, you know, as far as, you know, whether you see this as a Jacob moment, a Pharaoh moment, or for that matter, a Reuben moment where he is simply revisiting on Reuben some of the cruelty that Reuben visited on him earlier. Uh, you know, Joseph, again, in this long, continuous uh, narrative, uh, he's a very complex character. So, I mean, he does uh, either have the respect for marriage or the wherewithal uh, not to welcome the advances of Potiphar's wife. Uh, he has either the patience uh, or the Machiavellian cunning uh, to stick around in prison and, you know, become in charge of the place while he's waiting for his elevation to Pharaoh's court. There's all kinds of choices all the way through this story as to how you're going to read it. Like I said, my own tendency is to say, in these moments, uh, Joseph is treating his own family the same way that he treats all of the nations of the region a little bit later on in the narrative when they come to him and say, our families are going to starve. Uh, Joseph says, well, then sell me your property. Mm-hmm. They come back. Our families are going to starve. Okay. Uh, you know, sell me all of your land. Our families are going to starve. All right. Sell yourselves to me and to Pharaoh as slaves and be, you know, debt slaves to Pharaoh. Uh, you know, I mean, this is in my mind, you know, Joseph basically out Pharaohing Pharaoh, uh, at the same time, he is also the vessel of the preservation of Israel's election. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, like I said, I mean, there's some genuine theological complexity here. Uh, but honestly, a, 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 a five-year-old is probably not ready for You probably just need to know right. his brothers threw him in a hole and later on he forgave them. That's probably not <laughs> When you are 35, you need to recognize that this is a guy who has been pharaoh's right hand for so long that he starts acting like pharaoh what else grubs is going on in this this incident well a lot of this is um he's it's it's not just that he's messing with his brothers which he is and and you know i i hadn't picked up on the um on the ways in which his the manufacturing of evidence, but also the, you know, I hadn't picked up on the Pharaoh-ness of this. Um, but. And the Potiphar wifiness. And the Potiphar wifiness, yes. <laughs> um, well, within certain restricted um, kinds of correspondences, it's it's not entirely. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but one, one of his main agendas with his brothers, is, he, he, he recognizes them. He speaks to them roughly, which, okay, let's be fair. The last time he saw these guys, they threw him down a hole and sold him. Mm. All right. You know, I wouldn't be like, oh, hey, you guys. How's it been? <laughs> you know, they, you know so, so he recognizes them. They don't recognize him. Um, he accuses them of being spies. And then they say, we, your servants, are 12 brothers the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. 
right? This is, so far as we can tell in the story, this is the first that Joseph has ever heard that he has another brother. Mm-hmm. And who is that brother, right? Um, there's another youngest, and he knows that he's accounted in the number. He's the one who's no more. But there's someone else that he's never, there's someone else he's never met. Oh, so and, there really were 12 stars. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, well, I mean, <laughs> what he says, um, uh, he recognizes his brothers. Verse 9, Joseph remembers the dreams that he had dreamed. Mm-hmm. Right? So in this moment, he's like, oh. Well, I got to make sure the dream comes true. <laughs> well, it seems to be, but in the dream there were in the dream there were eleven bowing to me, and then he finds out ah there he does have eleven brothers, and so now the the interest is in getting that eleventh brother there right. The dream hasn't really happened yet; it's almost happened, but not really because because the other brother isn't there. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, he eventually finds out is that the brother who's missing who he who they they do eventually bring back is is his is his brother through his mother as well not just his half brother right mm-hmm. um anyway i i i think that's that's kind of important and you know it, it keeps talking about how he's testing them you know in what ways is he testing them are they going to treat the other son of rachel well are they going to treat the other favorite well um you know things like that th- things like that it seems it seems relevant to put to put that in there um, as, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I don't see any particular reason why he should be immediately throwing these guys a party right. since the last time they saw him, they were debating about whether or not to just straight up kill him. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's not that they don't deserve to be treated like that. <laughs> that, that. That is certainly not, but this is, it just seems, I, I shouldn't say out of character. It's just out of character for the Sunday school Joseph I learned about. Yeah, it actually makes true. me like him more. Yeah. That he is he's kind of irascible. Like Jacob is kind of irascible. Yeah. Well, and he's got this kind of rascally suspicious tendency. Which actually also makes sense. Um if if you, you look spend at, most of your adult life in prison, I bet you're suspicious. Yes. I mean he's <laughs> he's been framed, he's been set up, he's been forgotten. You know, this guy he, I could see him having developing trust issues. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that happening. Um, another thing that I hadn't thought of before is why does Egypt have to be told? You know what? Famine's coming. Maybe put food back each year. Why would they? Why would they need a guy? And why would they be so struck by that advice? Is whoa? Clearly, he is inspired by God. Seven years mm-hmm. of famine, though. Like that's that's not yeah. that's not a normal famine. Well, no. exactly. Exactly. It's 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 a new thing and what they're accustomed to is is predictable annual floods from the Nile right. that keep everything fertile. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's it's someone who comes from a from a region in which um the rain is seasonal and unpredictable um who who actually thinks to plan ahead for for future drought. Right. Know, he's and, the one who comes from the culture that's prepared for this. Right. And in terms of, you know, sort of Israel's identity as a nation, I mean, mm. built right into their founding story is this idea that Egypt's capacity to be Egypt depends upon Israel's awesomeness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You wouldn't have got where you were without us. Yeah, yeah. 
Jacob's story is so bound up with blessings that we've really got to talk about the blessings he gives to Joseph and Joseph's two sons in uh, chapters 48 and 49. Nathan, what's going or David, excuse me, what's going on here in terms <laughs> of redemption history? Well, we've already seen with uh and and Paul Paul brings this up in uh, in Romans that there is in in the history of God's covenant relationship with Abraham and Abraham's offspring this continued move by God to make distinctions between which which natural heirs of Abraham are also going to be the ones inheriting the blessing mm-hmm. so that uh, between Abraham's sons uh, Ishmael and Isaac, it is not the older son Ishmael who inherits, but uh, the second son Isaac, uh, the son uh, the son of promise who inherits. All right, and then Abraham goes on after Sarah's death to have even more sons, <laughs> um, but they are also not. Uh, they are also not the heir of the promise. Uh, then Isaac marries Rebecca and has twins. One comes from the womb first, Esau. The second comes from, you know, Jacob comes second. But it is Jacob who, through a trick, uh, receives the blessing from Isaac and also through a trick purchases the birthright from his older brother. Mm-hmm. So again, we have this uh, change of fortune that's going against what uh, everyone in the text assumes is the natural uh, order of things, which is that uh, primogenitor, uh, the oldest, is the one who carries the family line. So again, we have uh, Jacob. Jacob has picked up on the pattern and now is enforcing it, uh, not only in his sons overall, but in the blessing that he gives to Joseph's own sons. Joseph was always his favorite. Reuben, his firstborn, is not. Um, Reuben, in fact, is is kind of in the doghouse for, you know, other other points of behaving badly. Um, so in chapter 48, we see Jacob extending that principle even further. Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, um, which even the text before this time, um, well, chapter 48, Joseph brings his sons Manasseh and Ephraim and brings them before Jacob. And then Jacob says, now your sons who were born to me, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to Egypt, they are mine. He claims Joseph's sons as his own sons. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Right, mm-hmm. so he, he's not just pulling Reuben and Simeon out of the air; he's pulling his firstborn and his secondborn. All right, um, he's he's naming the sons who should be in that position. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, and he's saying Ephraim and Manasseh are now those those guys. They are now in relationship to me what those guys were. But he's putting Joseph's younger in front of Joseph's older, even to the point where. Joseph sets them on the appropriate sides of Jacob who can't see. Uh, he, he puts his sons on the appropriate sides so that the right hand will go on Manasseh and the left hand will go on Ephraim. But then, um, <laughs> then, then Jacob crosses his hands. <laughs> a, a, a trickster to the very end. Yes. 
So the blessing, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So here we have the... um, very explicitly, the blessing that, that came to Abraham, that came to Isaac, that came to Jacob, he's very explicitly um, passing this on to Joseph's sons and to his youngest son first. All right? mm-hmm. uh, Joseph tries to correct him, and which um, Joseph should know better than to do because he sh- his sons shouldn't be getting this blessing in any event. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. It's an act of his father's arbitrary will that he's getting that his sons are getting the blessing in any case. So who is he to tell his father? No. Um, so Israel says, yeah, I'm doing this on purpose, man. Um, back off and re and reasserts reasserts the blessing. Um, there's uh, another reference. Uh, well, in forty nine. Uh, there's a there's a blessing on Joseph, the longest blessing in the chapter. Joseph is a fruitful bough. Uh, he blesses all of his sons in chapter 49, um, in some senses uh, characterizing them through through uh, metaphors, but also um, making predictions. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remains unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Right. So this sort of retelling of the story of Joseph through a metaphor of the archer who was attacked by other archers, but his bow is the one who prevails. And then end of verse 24, for there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. All right. And it's harking back to the blessing that he gave to uh, Joseph's sons in which he talk about the God who has been my shepherd all my mm. life. Um, the God who shepherded Jacob, shepherded Joseph, and now will shepherd his sons. Mm-hmm. Nathan? And this is really the last act of Jacob uh, before he dies. And I mean, if, if you look at the blessings on the various brothers, I mean, once again, Jacob is just a moving target. You just never know. I mean, some of these, I mean, you, you, you call them blessings wily. just in a generic sense because they take on the genre of a blessing prayer. Um, but I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> when he, when he starts off with Reuben, he says, you know, you are my firstborn, but you're not going to get the firstborn privileges because you're such a turd. And then, you know, yeah, <laughs> that's my paraphrase, but you know, water. <laughs> and then, you know, some of them are kind of more, you know, conventional, you know, you get to Asher and you get to Naphtali and, you know, you get very, you know, nice poetic, uh, blessings. But when you get to Gad, uh, yeah, you're going to be a backstabber. You know, I, I kind of imagine Jacob nodding in approval on that one. Uh, <laughs> you know, Benjamin, uh, you're pretty much going to be a wolf. You're going to devour your enemies. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's not, uh, something you would expect, uh, if you've got the sort of, you know, flanagraph patriarch picture in your head, uh, one of the interesting things about this, and honestly, I think something that, uh, you miss if you don't take the time to pay attention and do the close reading of these blessings, uh, is that 
if if you judge by the poetry of Genesis 49, uh, you kind of expect the rest of the Old Testament to fall out basically how it does. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and the 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 prophecy for Judah is also completely unexpected. He's the only one who gets a scepter. Mm-hmm. And there's and and there's nothing that you've seen in the story so far that would lead you to think, oh yeah, yeah, scepters. That's that's totally what we're going to connect with Judah, not sleeping with your daughter-in-law. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Unbeknownst. <laughs> but that's all part of the genealogies of Christ at the beginning of the New Testament. The 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 lineage mm-hmm. through which Christ comes is full of irascible again to use my favorite word about the patriarchs <laughs> people you know people who yeah. who not only fail but who actively try to do the wrong thing <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah all i can think of now is how much i want a reuben sandwich <laughs> <laughs> well let's end the way we began with the practical what is it about joseph that makes him such an enduring figure and and if you want to do this too what makes him worthy of our emulation Nathan what makes Joseph interesting once you are a grown human being and not a child in Sunday school anymore although as a grown human being you probably should still go to Sunday school is that once again he is someone chosen to be a central figure in that redemption history we were talking about earlier and that is a reality even as we get a full view of his moral complexity. So he is someone who refuses the advances of Potiphar's wife, and he's the person who allows an entire region to be sold into slavery. Uh, He is a person who brings his father and his brothers and saves the family line. Uh, He is also a person who will use trickery to dang near kill his own father with fear and grief. Uh, he is a person who receives these people, uh, you know, provides so that they do not starve to death. And he's also the person who starts the story snitching his brothers out. So, you know, it, it is not emulation in the sense that everything that Joseph does, you should also do. But Joseph's is a story uh, that requires interpretation, that requires some wisdom to use a a word from, you know, later on in the Old Testament. Uh, you have to look at the details of the story. You have to take responsibility for the way that you read the details of this story. And, and I'll just end with a little, uh, little parable. Uh, I was in a church uh, 14 years ago, and the preacher was an old man, obviously had uh, cut his teeth in Bible college in the Cold War days, uh, he preached Genesis 47, where Joseph uh, buys all of the the region's people into slavery. His interpretation of that story is Joseph here is the real hero of the story, because if these people hadn't sold themselves into slavery, they might have started sharing their resources and become communist. Oh my! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing Joseph also sold the early Christians into slavery. Yeah, yeah. And so, um and, and by the way, that was the first time that I'd heard that reading of Joseph. It was not the last time. The common thread there is that every preacher in question had gone through Bible college during the height of the Cold War. 
So anything that can seem to be anti-communist becomes a positive moral exemplar. That's precisely the, the challenge of the Joseph narrative and of Old Testament narrative more broadly. You as the reader and we as the reading community have to deliberate together and discern together what is faithful and what is unfaithful in these stories. These are not simplistic stories that do the work for us. They are challenges that invite us to the work of faithful reading. Hmm. David, what do you got? I, I would agree with that. Um, the, the, there is the continued emphasis in the text by the narrator that the Lord is with Joseph, but it's in the sense that he's making things turn out okay. <laughs> um, not necessarily in the sense that he's that that therefore everything Joseph does gets divine sanction. Um, nor is it necessarily telling you when Joseph is is wise or prudent. What is wise or prudent about him? What is the principle in here that's worth emulating? Um, now, when he flees Potiphar's wife. And when he responds, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I think the narrator means us to say, okay, this is an unambiguous hero moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we can't, I, I don't think that we can look at that moment in the story and say, hooray, we've finally gotten an unambiguous hero in the Old Testament. Let's just milk this guy for all he's worth. Right. <laughs> um. You know, I, this is a brief shining moment of positive clarity that I think the narrator, the narrator doesn't want us to miss. <laughs> but at the same time, that doesn't mean that now, you know, now Joseph is the white hat mm-hmm. of, of Genesis. Um, he's more complicated than that, as, as you've already said, Nathan. Well, Nathan, what are we doing next week? Next week, we're going to take on a film, uh, again, that is not a positive moral exemplar. Or a positive aesthetic (laughs) exemplar. Or a positive exemplar in much of any way. But nonetheless, it is a central element of the mythology of my generation. Uh, Michael, because he is not nearly as ancient as I am, uh, finds it a relic of times that are well forgotten. We're going to talk about it anyway. It's Top Gun. (laughs) <laughs> oh good lord I might I might have to be sick next week <laughs> listeners you can uh, email us at the Christian Humanist uh, the, the Christian Humanist at gmail.com if you are uh, interested in ca- castigating Nathan for such a choice or if uh, we left <laughs> out something interesting about Joseph that you would like us to talk about in a future Listener feedback episode, you can also go to our website, which is christianhumanist.org. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Amberly Copeland. For Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>